Well, our very special guest tonight is Robert McNeil. It's really good to have you here. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> uh, it's been a long time since you were here before. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when it was. Uh, I have. I'm talking in my native accent. I think I was <laughs> doing so a moment ago. What? Do you identify it? Uh, no, I don't know where you come from. I can go back to it again and just keep talking this way. <laughs> Do you come from uh, Brooklyn? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly so. A graduate of New Utrecht High School. <laughs> that's um, that's interesting. Um, we could talk about what's happening to New York accents yeah. um, uh, along the way, if you'd like to. Well, we could you t deal with that and a great deal else in this wonderful new book, Do You Speak American? That's by Robert McNeil, our guest tonight, and William Cran. What is happening to New York accents? Um, They're changing, are they? The In Manhattan, particularly, it is now more prestigious, and this is going back 40 years or so, uh, to pronounce the R at the end of words like mother, because New York was one of those East Coast cities which was originally R-less. The mm -hmm. original settlers, like Boston and uh, and New York and and Charleston and Richmond and uh, uh, Savannah, did not. A scene comes to me from my childhood: yeah. a rather poor kid who was in lived someplace near us in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn yeah. was discovered on the street one day eating a potato. A baked potato. My friend said, where'd you get that potato? And he said, me mother gave it to me. <laughs> and that's what you're talking yeah. about. Um, anyway, um, there's a... But now we would say, me mother, me, me mother. Me mother, well, uh, with the number of new immigrants from such a variety of places in uh, Queens and Brooklyn mm -hmm. nowadays, it could, be, it could be anything. But there's a, a very distinguished linguist in Philadelphia named William LeBoff. He's... L-A-B-O-V. He's, he's kind of the granddaddy of linguists. And he organized some research starting in the 1960s. And they would send researchers into New York department stores graded by their, the, their socioeconomic level, Klein's, Macy's, Saks Fifth Avenue. And the higher up the scale, uh, the uh, social scale these uh, stores were, the more the staff pronounced the R's, and they would mm -hmm. all, they would ask the same question everywhere, and the answer was always uh, to which was fourth floor. And the more the staff pronounced the R, the higher it was up the social scale. And Leboff has repeated it over the years, every decade or so, and more and more New Yorkers are now pronouncing their R's, at least in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. But they point out that in, um, in the uh, TBC's Law and Order, Law and Order, <laughs> um, it's the uniform cops who don't pronounce their R's and the suits who do. And they've sort of noticed this little distinction. But if you went to the suits in Boston, yeah. the suits would be in a bank, say, rather than in the district attorney's office. Right. And if you asked uh, some, one of the, those suits, where do I get to such and such an office, he would answer, answer on the fourth floor. On the fourth floor. Yeah. He would not use the R. Yeah, fourth floor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well... The, uh, I think the imprint is stronger in, um, in Boston, and it stayed. Although people like the uh, producers of the documentary of about 10 years ago called American Tongues claimed that there were four different accents in Boston. Um, it's really fundamentally the same accent with slight variations, but it's very strong still in Boston. Uh, would you like to hear one Bostonian? Sure. We've got a few clips tonight. And this is an eminent Bostonian. If we're ready in the booth with it, here it is. We observe today not a victory of party, 
but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now, for man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary belief that is Kennedy's inaugural. Right. Would you hear him say, I have sworn before you a solemn oath? But yeah. he says, I have sworn before you. You, yeah. That, that R is missing. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, we go into this quite a lot in the book and um, how the R-less speech, um, not the Boston accent necessarily or the New York accent, but how R-less speech was very prestigious. Um, certainly in the early days of radio and the movies and everything, um, until just after the Second World War, when it kind of some began to lose its prestige. But a lot of early radio, if you hear the recordings now, announcers sounded more British than mm -hmm. they do now. Yeah. Certainly movie stars did. And FDR did. Westbrook Pegler, a yes. great early announcer, right. introduced the March of Time. Yes. And there was a great opening with uh, an appropriate fanfare, and he would say, the march of time. Oh, yes. But so the R is missing, it is march. R right, the march of yeah. time, yes. But that wouldn't happen it today, is, you're right. It's, it's intriguing, um, and we discussed this with a linguist who's an expert on it, it's intriguing that just at the moment when British prestige in American eyes was at its very highest, right at the end of the Second World War, Americans wanted not to sound British. Now, whether that was because returning troops brought attitudes back with them or whatever it was, I can't imagine. Of that. course, the missing R as the terminal letter, and sometimes even in the middle of the word, is very common in received uh, speech of the polite variety in Britain. Yeah. But at, in other, at other class levels and in other regions, there's a lot of regional variation. Oh, yeah. Isn't there in England? Yeah. Uh, you sometimes get a very pronounced R. Yeah. We did... Um, this series, The Story of English. Yes, indeed. Uh, we talked about uh, that book. It was, of course, coordinate with that great television right. series. Um, nearly 20 years ago. And uh, in it, we had a um, one of the directors and founders of the Royal Shakespeare Company um, talking as he thought Shakespeare himself mm -hmm. might have talked. And he did the opening uh, chorus from Henry V, and it sounded something like, Oh, for a muse of foyer, so to ascend the brightest heaven of invention. And sounded rather Irish. Yeah, it sounded, uh, he intended it to sound, drawing on Warwickshire and Gloucestershire, mm -hmm. Shakespeare's own area. It sounded more southwest um, Britain to me. Anyway, a few minutes later in the series, we were on Tangier Island in Chesapeake Bay, and there was a preacher and it made the hair stand up in the back of my neck to hear him because he sounded so much like uh -huh. what this guy imagining Shakespeare's own accent sounded like. So we still have a lot of regional variation oh, in accent yeah, yeah. and some in vocabulary and, uh, and yeah. special expressions. Less so. in vocabulary and special expressions. The, the first maps of uh, American dialects um, in the... Uh, 
done going back to the 19th century when linguists first began doing this were really based on regional differences in expression and vocabulary because um, people had different expressions for animals, for farm implements, for tools, for all sorts of things. Most of them made at home. And now, you know, a century and a half later, we have uh, sort of nationalized or universalized a lot of the production of these things, and we lost many of those expressions. Though you have tracked the different words originally used to uh, refer to the common donut, and you find a lot of variation there, don't you? I don't know that. No? What, what are you Somebody referring? else has done that then. Somebody else has done that. It's something I, I've read recently I in preparation. What I have um, done in this, and just picked it up from... Uh, uh, dictionaries and things are all the different expressions for um, hero sandwiches. Oh, there, there we are. And uh, I, I can, submarine I can, is one. Yeah, submarine is one. Torpedo is one in um, in um, New York as a variation uh -huh. on uh, submarine. But they are um, um, they are grinder chiefly in that's, uh, that's, New England. Yeah, that's Boston. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, Wedge in Rhode Island and coastal Connecticut. Um, a spooky in Boston also. Huh? Uh, hero, sometimes torpedo, and you're a hoagie in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. submarine in Ohio and farther west. But the interesting thing is, while these are still localized there, Americans travel so much that the terms often go with them, so it's probably very mixed up now. When I was a kid in New York, a Sunday was um, a sort of a drink. Yeah. It was like a super malted, I guess, mm -hmm. with more ice cream in it. Yeah. Whereas in this part of the country, it was, and I think still is, uh, ice cream with gunk laid upon it. Uh-huh. You mean it was like a, um, it was like an ice cream soda? It sundae. was definitely an ice cream soda, yeah. yeah. We, we, which I don't think exists anymore, do they? Ice cream soda? I haven't had one in 30 or 40 yeah, years, right, or more, right. I'm sure. Right. Um, there are also the regional variations in the, in pop and soda, mm -hmm. and sometimes in the South they just say a Coke, meaning any of these things, if they don't say Dr. Pepper. But, but the point is that they're now no longer making maps of dialects so much by differences in vocabulary and expressions or syntax. Um, you know, there are still regional things. I have a friend from uh, East Texas who says, might should. We might should do this. Mm -hmm. you know? And, of course, lots of people in the South, they fix them too and so on. But it's more by pronunciation. And the latest map, which is reproduced at the front of our book, called the um, Atlas of North American English, is achieved by um, uh, comparing pronunciations of certain words all over North America. A curious one that I run into at times, I, it always pulls me up short. It just has a different meaning from the word as I would use it, where I would place it syntactically, is the word anymore. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, you will hear somebody say, uh, she's at home anymore. Yeah. And that doesn't make any sense to me, but it, it means now, I guess, or something like now. Yeah, it is, um, yeah, and it's used in Pittsburgh in a very, um, in a very uh, interesting way, and that is, um, I, have, I have an example here, um, where it is, uh, they say things like, the car needs washed, you know, um, but also this, um, anymore, Anymore, there's somewhere new, new, new buildings. You can't tell which is which. Anymore, in the sense of now, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, now we had. Uh, no, anymore. Anymore, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, um, that uh, is interesting because uh, we were comparing a lot of Cali We can come on to California dialect, which is emerging, but a lot of Californians originally came from Ohio, 
And uh, when they did a, they're doing a survey, which is done by a man in Harvard, and which is still ongoing on the Internet. And you can get on the Internet and add to it if you want to. It asks a list of words, and how do you pronounce them where you live? Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, he, um, uh, this, uh, there was a question asked, um, the, uh, the price of pantyhose is so um, high anymore it's mm -hmm. you might as well go out and get a tan or words to that effect and that was regarded as unacceptable in california but acceptable in ohio because ohio maybe down the ohio river somebody had picked up this um kind of pittsburgh use of how could anymore. it have happened originally it just seems uh, a word has been misplaced and misunderstood yeah, i don't know it's, it's it's mysterious how these things happen um Pittsburgh is heavily influenced by a uh, big Scots-Irish mm -hmm. uh, movement west through Pennsylvania. I don't know that it came from there. And I have to caution you, um, uh, just to remind you, I am not a linguist. I'm a, I'm a journalist who's interested in this. But stuff. you've been talking to lots of linguists. Yeah, I've been talking to lots of linguists. Your, but, uh, your but advisory I'm, board is quite an impressive Yeah, roster. but I don't know everything they know. <laughs> Nor do I, of course. But we have prepared a few clips tonight. Uh, featuring different regional accents, and I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to try to identify them. All right. And we'll proceed with that right after we pause for this. Our guest tonight is Robert McNeil. Uh, many listeners will, of course, recognize that that's the Robert McNeil, who was one half of the McNeil-Lehrer uh, duo, and he left that just a few years ago, 2001 or thereabouts? No, no, it was 1995. That long ago? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. uh, Seems like only yesterday. <laughs> um, your your old partner has been here often yeah. since he insists on writing novels. I know, and they're very very funny novels usually. Yeah, he is. Uh, but Robert McNeil is a very active writer, and he's done a number of novels and various other kinds of books, including the title of that earlier book about the English language was the story of English. The story of English. Yeah. And now we have Do You Speak American? So Robert McNeil and his colleague William Cran are focusing in on English as we use it and or misuse it. Uh, I promised you some clips. Here's one in which uh, actually the origin is identified. After that, they get more difficult, but you would have recognized this one anyway. That's a valley girl, like totally, for sure. And, uh, and I grew up in like Canoga Park, which is um, kind of like uh, near like Woodland Hills and stuff. There's a crowd there, like near Topanga Canyon. Rainbow Passage. When the sunlight strikes raindrops in the air, they act like a prism and form a rainbow. The rainbow is a division of white light into many beautiful colors. These take the shape of a long, round arch, with its path high above and its two ends apparently beyond the horizon. There is, according to legend, a boiling pot of gold at one end. People look, but no one ever finds it. When a man looks for something beyond his reach, his friends say he is looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, I should make clear that these are done by a linguist, many of the ones we have tonight, and he's having them read a standard passage. Yeah. Now, she reads that standard passage, she doesn't sound as much a California girl as she did before that. No, it's true, but there is one giveaway, I think, What's that? and that is a feature that was identified by a linguist who told us about the California accent, uh, and that is a little creakiness in the voice at the ends of uh, sentences, oh, yeah. and you can, you can hear that in her voice as she's reading that passage. What, um, what else is this... Is distinct about California. Yeah. Well, nowadays the um, this linguist Carmen Fott, who herself grew up Valley Girl mm -hmm. and is now a professor, so she can turn it on and off. She says that one of the most common features, which she thinks is spreading across the country, is the fronting of vowels 
the ooh vowels. So the, in the word do, the vowel becomes more do, uh, mm-hmm. said at the front of the mouth. And similarly, um, go, go. Do you know where go, to go? Go, go. Yeah. Uh, and the other feature that is, um, that is one of the features anyway, um, is the um, rising inflection at the ends of statements. Yeah, that one drives me mad. Yeah, it Today drives me Tuesday. mad too. And it, it's, it's such an interesting thing. Now, whether it really originated in California or when it originated, um, nobody seems to know. When we did the story of English uh, in the early 1980s, we had a long sequence in Australia. And the young women in Australia we talked to, journalists and others, were doing that. Um, I remember that very well. Well, these it, things diffuse around the world, don't they? Yeah, they From do. one English-speaking country to another. Sure, very, very quickly. And America, instance, like, you, like has done that. You do argue in the book, or you do contend, that America is the source of most linguistic innovation, both in terms of pronunciation and in terms of vocabularistic shift. Yeah, um, and uh, I wouldn't say if most may be a bit strong, but certainly more. Than, yeah. uh, and because of the huge cultural impact of this country overseas on all levels of culture, from the Pentagon down to uh, Baywatch, or up, mm. uh, is... Um, Baywatch is up. Baywatch is up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was seen in 140 countries at one period. Mm-hmm. Not that language was the most important feature in Baywatch, but um, anyway. Uh, it is, we export so much, um, and our language is a very important part of what gets exported. So that young people in Asia and Africa, in other words, who a generation ago might have opted for the British model in choosing to learn English, and of course that's one of Britain's great exports, mm-hmm. uh, may often now choose, for instance, for business reasons, to learn the American model. It's partly because of the American dominance in business, but it must also be because of the uh, rapid and thorough diffusion of American film and television yeah, throughout indeed, the world. Yeah, indeed. Um, and... Um, you know, we, uh, we, are, we are, and our popular culture is emulated by the youth around the world. I mean, they want to look and sound and behave as young Americans do. And since we are youth-obsessed mm-hmm. in this country, and we've introduced a generation now that are as important a consumer force as adults are uh, in teenagers, and we defer... You know, that there are... I mentioned this in the book. There are uh, corporations which hire teenagers and send them out to the suburbs of certain cities to um, pick up the latest uh, teenage expressions and slang so that these corporations can then use them and be current in their, mm-hmm. in their advertising. Let me offer you another reading of that same passage, and let's see if we can identify the origin of this reader. When the sunlight strikes raindrops in the air, they act like a prism and form a rainbow. The rainbow is a division of white light into many beautiful colors. These take the shape of a long, round arch with its path high above and its two ends apparently beyond the horizon. There is, according to legend, a boiling pot of gold at one end. People look, but no one ever finds it. When a man looks for something beyond his reach, his friends say he is looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I'm guessing... Around this part of the country, I'm guessing. Exactly so. You're very good yeah. at it. Yeah. That's Illinois, I'm told. Illinois. Uh, uh-huh. our, our producer worked them all up today. It's the flattening of that vowel in pot into kind mm-hmm. of pot, uh, which suggested it to me. Now, I'm just guessing at this. I'm far from being an expert on it. You know the television skit that they used to do on um, Saturday Night Live mm. about these 
thuggish guys swilling beer and uh, and uh, bragging about our local football team, the Bears. Yeah. And always pronounced as the Bears. <laughs> now, I don't know that that's really part of Chicago's speech, but it, it's part of that, that representation, at least, as we got it yeah. at Saturday Night Live. I don't know about that, but speaking of uh, football teams with uh, names that are pronounced in idiosyncratic yeah. ways, the Pittsburgh Steelers are known locally as the Stillers. 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 How do you account for that? Um, it's just part of the Pittsburgh dialect, which uh, of which they're very proud. Your book deals, of course, uh, the new book, Do You Speak American, with the story of the origins of these different regional accents. Mm -hmm. And there are, it has to do with migration patterns, basically. Yeah. And they are basically Americans speak as they do because, as they do, <laughs> because the uh, earliest settlers came from parts of Britain where they spoke in certain <laughs> ways which is why the East Coast cities, with one exception, uh, were largely Arles, uh, and the one exception was Philadelphia, because there was a huge in-migration of Scots-Irish people. Those were the lowland Scots who were shipped over to Northern Ireland. To they not only pronounce their R's, they trill their R's yeah, trill their R's, yes. Yeah. And they, uh, you're you're know, a Scots background. Can you trill an R for us? Well, I could try, but I, you know, I'm several generations I removed from all that. Uh, but the Northern Irish have a very distinctive accent, which we've heard a lot of in the last uh, 20 or 30 years because mm -hmm. of all the troubles there. We hear it on television a lot, the sort of re Ian Paisley sound. Um, anyway, they got fed up with the British uh, and came, started coming to the States in large numbers in the 1720s onwards. Um, George Washington said he couldn't have won the revolution without them because they were such belligerent and they hated Britain so much. Mm -hmm. They were good fighters. Anyway, they arrived in large numbers in Philadelphia. At one point in 1750 or so, Ben Franklin said that Philadelphia was a third British, a third German, and a third Scots-Irish. Because the Germans and the British had acquired most of the good arable land, the Scots-Irish went through Pennsylvania and down into Appalachia. They also went up towards Pittsburgh. But, um, and they created the kind of stereotypical hillbilly speak, the Appalachian speech, with the hard R at the ends of mm -hmm. words, and exaggerated pronunciation to bear became bar, and, um, and so on. And um, that accent now has begun to filter down into the South, and we can discuss that later, but on your basic point, the patterns of early settlement in the eastern part of the United States are so set that even today, the Ohio River, for example, remains a boundary between northern and southern accents with some bleeding across, um, across it. And you can trace the accent patterns by the architecture patterns, which is really fascinating, whether they built frame houses or stone houses or log cabins. Who did which? Uh, well... They, they built with what, whatever was available. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there were more frame houses built in New England in the north where there was lots of hardwood. And in, uh, in Pennsylvania and other places, there was lots of stone. And, uh, you know, in other places, there was only softwood, which, mm -hmm. made, uh, which made log cabins. I can't tell you exactly which and which. Mm -hmm. I'm just quoting the linguists who say that the, the patterns uh, of, of accent difference still amazingly follow these early settlements. Now, how do we account for the following accent? I'm going to ask my friends in the booth to go to number 19. Um, how do we account for this accent, and for that matter, from whence does it come? Oh, it's just a jail delivery. This, we, uh, when we went through the... Uh, 
the Heritage Association's tour this last year, uh, we obtained a copy of this. And uh, this, I remember when my grandparents, um, who had a farm um, about 150 acres down at Staples, and my grandfather built a home there, and they lived there for over 80 years. And um, anyway, I recall them talking about uh, this incident because um, um, after their crops were in each year and everything, they deposited their money in the bank here. And uh, this happened on a, I think on a, what it says here, a Thursday evening. Uh, we were under the impression for the longest time that it was um, maybe um, um, Sunday when they were all in church. But anyway, somebody broke into the jail and took all the money. They got in there and they robbed the bank, literally robbed it. <laughs> Isn't she charming? She is charming. Uh, it suggests to me uh, some Appalachian and mm. some Texas. It sounds a bit like Texas to me. Um, uh, now, I don't know whether I'm right about that. It is Texas. It is Texas. Uh, um, a lady is a Caucasian female in her 70s uh, from San Marcos, Texas. I don't know where that is in Texas. Is I don't that... quite either, but, but <laughs> anyway, it's in Texas. Yeah, but, the, well, the reason there would be a connection, um, just to justify my first wrong mm -hmm. guess, the reason there would be a connection is because the Texas version of Southern had two streams to it. The coastal plantation Southern, the people who moved in, often with their slaves, and the people who came down from the uh, inland Southern, where R's were pronounced, with uh, a lot of Appalachian people yeah. coming. And then, of course, it got complicated by Germans and Poles and Czechs and others who came through the Gulf of Mexico directly into Texas. There are some strange um, linguistic pockets in America. You probably understand how they got there. I don't, but I know one that also relates to Canada. Uh, you and I were talking privately uh, a little while ago about one of the pathognomonic signs, or at least the definitive signs, of Canadian speech. And that's, if, if you had the sentence, the stout trout flouted about, you say it in Canadian. How would you say it? I would say it again in... The stout in, trout... In American. <laughs> the stout trout flouted about. Uh, the stout trout floated, floated about. Exactly. I would, uh, because... You tend to pronounce, at least in the Nova Scotia part of Canada, mm -hmm. where I come from, you tend to pronounce O-U-T as oat, as though it's spelled O-A-T. But the, the interesting anomaly is that that's what they also do down in Tidewater, Virginia. I know it is, yeah. And I don't know why. Oh, you don't know why? I, don't I was know hoping why. you would explain. I mean, a lot of Americans think that Canadians say oot, and they think no, it's, it's subtler than that. It's de directly from Scotland. Yeah. But... Um, I, I, I really don't know why, but it is true that in Tidewater, Virginia, the, yeah. there's this similar echo in you know, uh, echo of that sound. Um, I don't know. The, the basic Canadian accent was, uh, was established when um, some 50,000 American loyalists who didn't want to join the revolution went north to Canada in one of the largest middle-class migrations in history. And they were largely educated people. Most of them went to Ontario. A lot went to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And they became very influential in their communities uh, when they were established. Then the sound of English in Canada before the migration of the Tory loyalists, loyalists was different, was it? Well, I, I don't know. It's hard to it reconstruct. Probably, it probably impossible to reconstruct because there were, um, you know, basically it was British North America. Mm -hmm. And uh, Canada had fewer 
um, European immigrants than uh, than I think the American colonies. Except had. in the latter day. In the, oh, I'm I'm talking about yeah. back before the American Revolution. Now Toronto is as polyglot as just about any town in the world. I it think. is. It has a Chinatown that I'm told is bigger than San Francisco's. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I have a sister who lives in Toronto, and she doesn't say tomato, and she doesn't say tomato. She says tomato, uh-huh. which is new to me. And uh, uh-huh. but it's and. And there are just a few words that have that very flat. So you have to accent. rewrite the old song. You say tomato and I, I say, say tomato. tomato. Yeah, unless you live in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> We're due for some, overdue for some commercials. We pause for those and then return directly to Robert McNeil and some other interesting recorded material. We are talking about the way in which English varies. It does, of course, vary across space. It does as well, as you well know, vary across time. And the English we speak and write now is not quite like what the English uh, Dr. Johnson spoke or wrote, for example. One could well choose him as the great exemplar of the perfected use of the English language and the colorful use of the English language in uh, the Augustan period of English literature, the second half of the 18th century. And I I just want to read this to you. It's a a great piece that is uh, quite well known, Um, but it represents... Um, a, a kind of florid or elaborated use of English which most of our writers would probably not be capable of unless they're trying to do an imitation. And I think something has been lost by our losing this richness of the English language. The occasion is interesting. Lord Chesterfield was a very, very important fellow, and uh, and Johnson sought his um, uh, his patronage while... Johnson was working on the Great Dictionary, and Chesterfield ignored him completely. But upon the publication of the dictionary, which got a lot of attention, Chesterfield wrote a few positive reviews of it for a local paper, and to which Johnson responds in the following way. To the Right Honorable the Earl of Chesterfield, February 7, 1755. My Lord, I have been lately informed by the proprietor of the world, that's the publication, that two papers in which my dictionary is recommended to the public were written by your lordship, to be so distinguished as an honor, which, being very little accustomed to favors from the great, I know not well how to receive or in what terms to acknowledge. When, upon some slight encouragement, I first visited your lordship, I was overpowered, like the rest of mankind, by the enchantment of your address, and could not forbear to wish that I might boast myself the vainqueur du vainqueur de la terre, uh, the conqueror of the conqueror of the earth, uh, that I might obtain that regard for which I saw the world contending. But I found my attendance uh, so little encouraged that neither pride nor modesty would suffer me to continue it. When I had once addressed your lordship in public, I had exhausted all the art of pleasing which a retired and uncourtly scholar can possess. I had done all that I could, and no man is well pleased to have his all neglected, be it ever so little. Seven years, my lord, have now passed since I waited in your outward rooms or was repulsed from your door during which time I have been pushing on my work through difficulties of which it is useless to complain, and have brought it at last to the verge of publication without one act of assistance, one word of encouragement, or one smile of favor. Such treatment I did not expect, for I never had a patron before. The shepherd in Virgil grew at last acquainted with love and found him a native of the rocks. Is not a patron, my lord, one who looks with unconcern on a man struggling for life in the water, and when he has reached ground, encumbers him with help. 
The notice which you have been pleased to take of my labors, had it been early, had been kind, but it has been delayed till I am indifferent and cannot enjoy it, till I am solitary and cannot impart it, till I am known and do not want it. I hope it is no very cynical asperity not to confess obligations where no benefit has been received, or to be unwilling that the public should consider me as owing that to a patron which Providence has enabled me to do for myself. Having carried on my work thus far with so little obligation to any favorer of learning, I shall not be disappointed, though I should conclude it, if less be possible, with less, for I have been long wakened from that dream of hope in which I once boasted myself with so much exultation, my lord, your lordship's most humble, most obedient servant, Sam Johnson. <laughs> Isn't that glorious? It's glorious. And it is... Um, How do you tell people off today, even in writing? You can't do it that way. Uh, no, uh, you probably can't. But the, um, the, the wonderful um, and sort of... Um, it's like a rolling thunder of, of sarcasm and irony that runs through it. But you know what it reminded me of when you were reading it? And I confess I wasn't familiar with the letter. It reminds me, uh, and it's not far separated in time, from the language in the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. It has the same kind of measured period and balanced uh, images and sentences and the same rich vocabulary, um, none of which is unfamiliar to us today. There are no words no, in there exactly that, so. that we don't know. But it has that kind of lovely rolling cadence that the, uh, that the Declaration has. You the Declaration is, is uh, talking about telling people off. The Declaration is wonderfully sort of vituperative about King George and his slights. And, um, yeah. But that's what it made me think of, and the rhythms of it, and the, uh, and the sort of periods. You, you find it even in the letters of George Washington. Yeah. Listen to this. He's writing, uh, this is during the war, enclosed as a copy of a letter from General Burgoyne, by which you will perceive he requests leave to embark his troops at Rhode Island or at some place in the Sound, and in case this cannot be granted, that he be allowed, with his suite, to go there and return from thence to England. His first proposition, as I have observed upon a former occasion, is certainly inadmissible, and for reasons obvious to himself. As to the second, which respects the departure of himself and his suite, Congress will be pleased to determine upon it and favor me with their sentiments by the first opportunity that I may know what answer to give him. Now, that's not, yeah. that's well, not a, well, a satirical one, piece. Well, it's just a routine communication, but it has an elegance about it. What one would love to know is how they talked. Now, we have some evidence of, of uh, mm -hmm. how they talked at the time, because it certainly Boswell's notes on Johnson, and Johnson did talk in these periods. Oh, yes. Um, whether whether Jefferson did or not, of course, we know from the drama of the time, the sort of contemporary drama in England um, in the Restoration period and onwards, that they uh, certainly characters in plays were made to talk in as flowery and extended to prose as that. But um, we have moved since Mark Twain put colloquial speech, or as he represented colloquial speech, into prose and into American literature, it seemed to me that we've moved in our writing much more like our speech ever since, and we've moved uh, we've moved towards um, away uh, from verbiage, as we would call it nowadays, away from the orotund, and towards the more um, economical, conversational 
style. Boswell tells Johnson that a particular well-known miscreant and roustabout uh, is about to be hanged, and he's grown rather sober and thoughtful. And you remember Boswell's, uh, you remember Johnson's response, you may count upon it, sir. There is nothing so concentrates a man's mind as the certain knowledge that he will be hanged in a fortnight. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I liked... Um, That's, that has a rotundity, a kind of an elegance yeah, of order, even though the thought is very clear. A lot of dark humor. Very uh, dark humor. And uh, he was very funny in, yeah. in a lot of these, yes. Um, I loved his, uh, Johnson's reply um, when somebody mentioned patriotism and the, the part that's very well remembered is that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Uh, and then Boswell um, sort of expostulates with him a little bit, and Johnson goes on to say, I do not, and I don't remember the exact words, but I do not, um, and the, all this has relevance today, I do not um, question the true patriotism of the man who loves his country, but those who would use patriotism for all their own purposes and ends. Um, you you looked at the powerful, you 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 uh, followed them, pursued them, wrote about them, uh, and uh, and you expressed opinions about uh, their comings and goings and their doings and their aspirations uh, when you were a very active reporter, and that was for most of your life. What do you see now when it comes to political parlance? We could even turn to what we heard last night, the president's State of the Union, or his inaugural of just a little while, a few days ago. I couldn't hear the State of the Union last night because I was in a bookstore in Chicago uh -huh. in Hyde Park talking to people. But um, no, I, I, I think one of the big contrasts in 2004 was in the, um, the political prose or utterances of the two main candidates. They were, they were very different when they were on the stump. And uh, President Bush has um, adopted, whether deliberately for effect or because it just falls naturally to him from his time in Texas, he's adopted what I've called in the book um, Talking Country. Mm -hmm. He's just acquired what is very now a very common informal way to speak American, where you're not too particular about the syntax and the grammar. Is he also using the Texas accent or... Well, That's moderate, you know, I, I, I can't see into his mind and or into Karl Rove's mind or anybody who's advising him. But I mean, if you heard him and didn't know who he was, would you say he's a Texan? Oh, yeah. A lot of the you time. Would. Although um, my wife, whose ear is, is, is in some way sharper for this, will um, insists that in different contexts, uh, President Bush's speech is very different when he's speaking to the United Nations, when he's speaking abroad. Mm -hmm. um, and... I haven't noted it as sharply as she has. I'm just interested in the way that he has found a political language, <laughs> instinctive or acquired or, or deliberately tuned to this, which is very much in tune with millions and millions of Americans. When he says, um, how you doing? Doing great. You know, this is the way Americans talk these and days. And you think there was a real contrast between him and Kerry? Oh, and, indeed there was. I mean, President Bush either in uh, casual conversation or in speeches written for him, hardly ever has subordinate clauses. There are simple declarative sentences, mm -hmm. one after the other, very short usually, and very clear. And the meaning is very clear, and his intent is very clear. And um, Kerry's political prose, whether written for him or just uttered on the stump, was a good deal more complicated and, um, and, and full of... Um, of conditional clauses mm -hmm. and 
and that may have been a handicap to it. But he has lost a good deal of his Boston accent. Yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's lost. In 1972, yeah. I was on a panel together with the young John Kerry. Oh. Who was just out of Vietnam, or had he, been for about a year or so, and yeah. was representing the Vietnam yeah. veterans against the war. Yeah. And uh, he was rather a, an odd presence, very tall, gangly, with even more hair than he's got now. And he spoke in so thick a Brahminical accent that yeah. one had a little trouble following his full meaning. Right. He um, he uttered one of the truly memorable phrases, and it was played again and again for him and against him mm -hmm. uh, during the campaign at that time. How do you um, persuade a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? I may be quoting it slightly, misquoting yeah, no, it slightly, but that was but it. A very a very eloquent line at the time. But here's a piece of uh, eloquence of that time, which uh, was both used uh, in his defense. Uh, because it seems so ta so appropriate to the time and used against him by people who were accusing him of being disloyal. Let's hear some political eloquence, and I say to my friends in the booth, FDR. Let's go to Roosevelt, uh, and this is eloquent in his own way. It's uh, It works wonderfully well upon the American public. It also represents yet another regional accent. national constitution and I am certain that on this day my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly, and boldly, nor need we shrink from honestly speaking conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. You know, listening to this, as, and we've all heard it many times, but in the context of the conversation we've had, I'm a little bit surprised. When he says the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, he gives a little bit of pronunciation to the terminal R. And later, he did not. For instance, we have excerpts in the uh, film that went yeah. with his book, um, when he's also talking about fear in one of the fireside chats, and the linguist who's analyzing it for us points out that every time he says fear, it's fear. D-A-H, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and uh, anyway... You're right. I heard that, too, this time. Uh, it is... Um, now, why? I don't know. But it certainly was. It was the upper-class Eastern prestige mm -hmm. accent of the time. But it does vary, say, from the upper-class accent of Boston. Oh, yeah. What's yeah. the variation? Yeah. Well, um, uh, Boston um, had flatter vowels. This sounds more English. Yes, it in does. A way. It yes. sounds more transatlantic mm -hmm. than the Boston. The Boston accent, um, which had had uh, centuries to cook... Um, was, it was, it does not sound, to my ears, doesn't sound English, mm -hmm. whereas this, and, and, and Eleanor Roosevelt, too, in her speech to the United Nations on the, um, promoting the Declaration of Human Rights, uh, she sounds 
as though she's two-thirds of the way across what the What does Atlantic. Bill Buckley sound like? Is he essentially in that same category? I guess he is, yes. He's from Connecticut. Yeah. He's raised there. Yeah, yes. But I, he sounds more like Roosevelt than he sounds yeah, like yeah. Uh, a uh, some, um Some people have kept that. Um, John Keane, the former um, governor of New mm. Jersey, who was one of the co-chairmen of the 9-11 Commission, uh, sounded to me as though he had, and he came from a long... Uh, pedigree of uh, well-to-do New Jerseyites and politicians. And if I'm not mistaken, had been a Rhodes Scholar as a young man. Uh, you know, I don't know that. That might have some influence. Yeah, it might. It yeah. might. Uh, we are going to pause for the usual reasons and uh, we'll shortly return listening to a few more regional accents and, of course, also entertaining calls from our listeners. Calls and, for that matter, email. We're opening the phone lines right now. The number, as ever, is 591 7200 Anything you want to ask, or for that matter, anything you want to explain, we're glad to hear from you. And if, for that matter, if you've got a, a regional accent quite different from the one that prevails in this area, uh, you might test our powers at deciphering and just talk for a bit, and we'll try to guess where you are from. 591-7200 is the number. If you'd rather reach us by email, particularly that applies to those who are Listening on the Internet at some great distance, the email address, extension 720, at tribune.com. And we return to one of America's best-known newsmen, Robert McNeil, who was, of course, the creator and anchor, uh, one of the two, on the McNeil-Lehrer News Hour on PBS from 1975 to 1995. Uh, now, of course, that is the News Hour with Jim Lehrer. Uh, Bob McNeil's previous books include Looking for My Country, Finding Myself in America. Those are both memoirs. That's one, it's one book. That's one memoir. <laughs> uh, that's probably the one we discussed with you many years yeah, ago yeah. on this program. And well, no, that, I, that I, was the I second memoir. You, no, that, that was uh, only published two years ago. Well, there was an early one that you did. Which you yeah, did called Wordstruck. Uh, there was another one called The Right Place at the Right Time. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. The one in which you tell the story about uh, your working as a radio announcer someplace up in Canada. That's right. And, and getting uh, locked out. Getting locked out. During the playing of uh, White Christmas it's by very, Bing Crosby. It's very memorable in my <laughs> mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, of course, Robert McNeil is the co-author of the book in hand tonight, uh, namely Do You Speak American? That is, by the way, it's eminently readable and great fun, and it's published by Nan A. Talis Doubleday. Uh, another uh, excerpt. We go to the phone shortly on 591 7200, but let's listen to this fellow and tell us where he's from, and it actually leads us to yet more, which is discussed in a whole chapter in your book. When the sunlight strikes, rain drops in the air, they act out of prison and form the rainbow. The rainbow is the division of white light into many beautiful colors. These take the shape of a long, round arch with its path high above and its two ends apparently beyond the horizon. There is, according to legend, a boiling pot of gold at one end. People look, but no one ever finds it. When a man looks for something beyond his, his reach, his friend says he is looking for a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That that is an African American uh, speaking, but where exactly he's from? There are there are tones in uh, in his accent that I'm not sure where he's from. Want to make a guess? I, I can't. I just it's puzzling he's, to me. He's from Mississippi. Mississippi. Grenada, uh, Mississippi. Uh -huh. uh, Sixty-year-old man, uh, 
recorded down there. And recorded recently? Uh, I don't know just when. I've seen reference to these uh, to the, these uh, linguistic tests. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a feeling they were done some time ago. I'm, I'm that not, could well be. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not uh, sure. Maggie, Maggie Burnt, our producer, dug this up for uh-huh. me this afternoon. Uh-huh. She got it off the Internet. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, uh, definitely the uh, the um, the vowel sounds and things were African-American. Yeah. Now you take on, by the way, how was African-American different from uh, the ordinary white American Southern speech that may, may have surrounded them? It was much less different, according to uh-huh. some recent research that's been done, at least in, um, in part of uh, East Central Texas, which was part of cotton country during slavery. Um, some researchers from the WPA, the works, I have to say nowadays, the Works Progress Administration, because so many young people mm-hmm. don't know, uh, which was one of the um, agencies set up during the New Deal. Uh, and they did all kinds of strange and amazing things. Um, and they employed artists for all sorts. Eudora Welty, the great writer, got employed by the WPA to go and take photographs mm-hmm. of black people. Anyway, some researchers went to this um, community in Texas uh, in the late 30s and early 40s, and they recorded the voices of former slaves who were still alive, very elderly people. And when modern researchers, linguists, analyzed this, they found that the language of the uh, African Americans there had two features that interested them. One was it was very much like the white speech of the people around them at the time. The other was it was uh, were absent many of the features that are identifiers for inner city black English today, like what linguists call the um, the invariant be I be going, meaning I'm in the habit of going. And the absence of a um, auxiliary verb in uh, a phrase like "I working" um, instead of "I am working" um, or "I was working," and many other features which are common in inner-city African American speech today. So these linguists, led by Guy Bailey of the University of Texas at South in San Antonio, believe that after the great migration of the blacks to the north, to the promised land, Chicago mm-hmm. included. Um, they became ghettoized, they became more segregated socially than they had been in the South, and their language, as always happens when people are separated, their language began yeah. to diverge from mainstream American Makes English. Makes sense. Yeah. You do take on directly in one chapter in the book the whole question of Ebonics, of whether yeah. black speech ought to be taught or ought to be uh, drilled out yeah. of kids in school. Well, um, I've um, taken the um, side in this of those who say that if you're going to bring black kids along in school to bring them into mainstream American English, you have to have some sympathy for the speech they arrive with. Because in linguist eyes, of course, all dialects are neutral. They're just different ways of saying or speaking the language. But there's a lot of inherent um, intrinsic racism still in our attitudes to black speech. For instance, when the Ebonics became the national cause of the national furor in the late 90s, you remember the Oakland School Board said that Ebonics was a different language from English and therefore qualified for English as a second language federal funding. There was a national outcry by blacks and whites um, over uh, protesting about this. And some people, including black and white liberal columnists, allowed themselves to call this uh, black speech Ebonics gibberish. Now, it can't be gibberish. No. Gibberish means meaningless, um, unintelligible. And to blacks in the inner cities, their language is perfectly intelligible, and it's, uh, it's adapted and available for all the nuances and subtleties they want to express. 
But we allow ourselves that kind of racist attitude to that which we would not dream of expressing publicly about other attributes attributes of being black today or being African-American. And so a lot of teachers have tended to treat children arriving with this home language as uneducable or to put them down, which of course creates obstacles in their learning to read and write, and I think is a contributing factor to the much higher dropout rate in uh, schools and high schools among blacks than among the whites. So we have this example, nice example in Los Angeles, of some very interesting teaching of fifth grade kids to um, translate black English into mainstream American English and to identify the uh, the grammatical points in it and code switch as they call it mm-hmm. and it's a very entertaining sequence in the movie and it's uh, it's dealt with in the book and I you know language is an important obstacle still in the legacy of slavery after all these decades of civil rights advances some mm-hmm. of which I helped to cover back in the 60s mm-hmm. in Alabama and Mississippi after the rise of this huge well-educated black middle class I mean after all we just had inaugurated a secretary of state who was an bl- African-American woman. Um, and it, it's disappointing that we've made such advances um, in dealing with this scourge that this remains an obstacle. I'm so, sorry to go on about no, it. No, it's quite fascinating. Just last night, in response to the uh, State of the Union message, we got around to talking about the immigration problem. Mm. Uh, I had three guests here, and we were all opining away. And... Uh, one other one question that arose is whether the in the large Mexican communities, there uh, uh, the, whether the acculturation process is moving properly apace, or whether there are large pockets who are resisting not only uh, the American ethos and the American culture, but the American English language itself. Yeah, well, there are those who believe the latter, who believe that uh, Mexicans in particular are um, are are not wishing to adapt to American mm-hmm. culture because they don't like it and they want to maintain their own. The linguists who study um, the progress of generations, and they're quoted extensively in this book, say that Hispanic immigrants, Mexicans included, are assimilating into mainstream English at the same generational rate that other immigrant groups did. Now, it's true because the Mexican uh, immigration is continual. It's not a discrete wave as it was for Italians and others in the past. And there are large communities in this country all over where older people especially can get away with, get by with, not learning English. We have some of them. But um, the the census data which um, have been analyzed by the State University of New York at Albany, the census data between 1990 and 2000, incidentally the census asks what language do you speak at home, and how well do you speak English? And analyzing that census data, they say young Hispanics, m- migrants, arrivals here, are, are adopting English as rapidly as other language groups did in the past. And that seems to be borne out, my own looking at the census data, in target cities like Dallas and Houston and San Antonio. Another interesting angle about... Um the mixture of languages, and you cover this in the book, of course, is how the other languages get into English. Yeah. The borrowings and uh, the vocabulary yeah. uh, inclusions. Yeah, yeah. There are... Um, a video, uh, there's a good deal of uh, con- continued growth of Spanglish these days, is there not? Uh, yeah, but Spanglish... Um, is Spanglish um, giving us words, putting Spanish words into English, 
or is it just a way of switching back and forth between Spanish and English very rapidly in the midst of sentences, mm -hmm. which which a lot of people do? Um, and the uh, the borrowings of words um, are one of English, of course, has never been a restrictive language. It's always taken words from everywhere, and it's been uh, grossly changed with certain big migration ships. The the Norman invasion altered the language. Oh, yeah. Totally by Frenchifying it. Yeah, yeah. For about 300 years, French was the official language yeah. of, uh, of the British Isles. Of course, only an educated veneer, an elite, spoke French. And uh, it was a great moment when Henry V broke out of that and began to speak in English, celebrated, of course, by Shakespeare, mm -hmm. with some pretty terrific English. Uh, but uh, it's true. We, we borrow all the time. But so much Spanish came into the English language, uh, into American language, um, just by osmosis, because the Spanish Spanish was spoken in those areas that were reoccupied by Americans uh, forcibly after the during the uh, the wars, the Mexican Wars. Um, all the expressions involving cowboys are are uh, all of Spanish origin. He's loco. Uh, yeah, he's loco. Um, vamos, uh, vamos. Yeah. Um, uh, pinto, uh, pony, describing horses, mm -hmm. chaps from Chaparral, lariat. Um, I can't think of them all, but anyway, a great many. And now, of course, there is a real reconquista, reconquest of uh, part of American culture in that uh, every American now knows what an enchilada is or a, um, a taco. Or... But it's even entered into a metaphorical language, the big... Uh, uh, the whole enchilada. The whole enchilada or the big enchilada. Or the big enchilada. Is the man of yeah. power. Yeah, right. But the, the interesting thing is we have some second-generation high school kids in Los Angeles in our, in our um, television thing and in the book who, um, whose parents are only Spanish-speaking, and they don't know enough Spanish to go to a Taco mm -hmm. Bell and order a, yeah. an enchilada. Uh, Wonderful stuff. And there's much more of it to be found in this fine new book, by Robert McNeil, Do You Speak American? Uh, you speak American out there, and lots of people want to talk with you. And we're going to get to the phones and to the email directly after these words. And we will go directly to the phones for your questions and comments to Robert McNeil, author of Do You Speak American? 591-7200, the number you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, ma'am. Could Robert McNeil comment on the dialect of the UP? The Upper Peninsula in Michigan. Yes, but it sort of has bled into uh, the Dakotas. You know, I'm, um, I'm aware of it, and I just don't know enough about it to talk about it. I've read articles about it, but um, I'm, um, I'm not enough of an expert to give you an answer. I'm sorry. Are, are you from there, ma'am? Um, I spent my um, summers there, mm -hmm. but in the film Fargo, one of the amusing oh, notes yes. was that the Japanese fellow begins to speak like the, the tone of the uh, yeah. UP people. Right. And it was very amusing. One of the uh, things I do know a little bit about is that when we were talking about the influence of foreign languages, um, many um, groups that arrived here left a lot of language with us, like Italians and food terms and a lot of Yiddish, a lot of German. Um, the Scandinavians left very few words but they left uh, uh, in heavily influenced the accents mm -hmm. of uh, Minnesota and I guess uh, as far north as uh, as far as Dakota, North mm -hmm. Dakota. Lawrence Welk, our thanks to the caller. 
uh, was well-known in his time, running his band. When I saw him years ago, I assumed he was foreign-born. And I learned later on that he wasn't. He was from North Dakota. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh -huh. And he sounded really rather exotic. I would have thought it was so, so he sounded such East European, but uh -huh. it was probably the Scandinavian influence. Uh-huh. Um... Well, we know what um, what Minnesotans sound like from um, from uh, the Prairie Home Companion, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, the um, it's it's interesting that uh, Norwegians were among the people who kept their language for a long time uh, in the immigrant communities here, and part of the uh, the uh, sort of spread of compulsory public education was the effort to get Norwegians out of their churches, mm -hmm. their church schools, and to come into public schools where they could learn uh, English. Yeah. Well, they um, were fairly isolated on, on the plains, mm -hmm. these various Scandinavian groups, mm -hmm. and thus maintained their identity, I think, far more fully. That's very visible in some novels. Um, Ole Rolstad, some, I, somebody uh -huh. like that, who wrote about such communities. Back to the phones, 591-7200, and you are on the air. Good evening. Are you there? Hello? Yes, sir. Yes, I'm here. I was just wondering if you could comment on the Cincinnati accent and how it was possibly derived. I I'm from Cincinnati. and Are you uh, talking Cincinnati at the moment, would you say? Well, actually, I've been gone for 20 years, so I I and I could never really hear what it sounds like. But now that I've been gone and I go back to visit, I just can't believe what it <laughs> sounds like. Uh -huh. And I'm just curious how it was derived. I, I'm um, I'm sorry, but I can't help you on that. I uh -huh. just I just uh, I don't know. And but you're you're saying it's distinctive, say, from the surround, from the rest of Ohio? Oh no, it's just yes, and it's also very very distinctive from from Chicago and and mm. other sections of the Midwest. And the East Side and the West Side of Cincinnati are also very very different from one another. Uh -huh. I was just wondering how, if you possibly knew, you know, how that that dialect was derived. Uh, where do you live now? I live in Chicago. Uh-huh. Well, we will appeal to a listener in Cincinnati. I'm sure we've got a number of them down there tonight to call us up on 591-7200 and give us some additional wisdom on the subject. As we go to this caller, good evening. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Fine, sir. Uh, thanks for taking my call. And mm -hmm. uh, First, before I ask my question, I wanted to say to uh, Mr. McNeil that I, uh, I'm an English professor, and I uh, had to teach a history of the English language class, and I, uh, it was the, one of the first classes I was assigned to teach, and I didn't exactly know what I was doing, and I used the story of English as my uh, anchor text. Oh, good. Uh, saved the class. It was a wonderful experience oh, for, thank you. for me and the class. But um, the question I was asking, I'm, I live out in the suburbs of Chicago, and I was just uh, had a general question about suburban versus uh, urban language, and... What, what you see is kind of the dynamic of that, and that, um, you know, we, we talk about uh, a New York accent or a Chicago accent, but when I hear myself or people in the, in the suburbs speak, it doesn't sound like it, uh, people in the city so much. And if you had any uh, thoughts about whether it's just kind of a leveling or a flattening that happens out in the suburbs, or if if there are other factors involved that, that distinguish the suburbs from uh, urban speech, I, I don't have a well-informed answer, but I'm going to I'm going to venture a guess that when people move out into the suburbs, their social aspirations lead them to acquire less accented, more standard uh, English English with fewer regional markers in it, and 
that's that's a guess. I don't know for sure. Okay. You have, uh, Milk, do you have an idea? About no, that? no, I'm quite in the dark on that one. Mm-hmm. We thank you, sir. Okay, thank you. I must read you this email. Please ask your guest to place the ball, attempt to explain the nearly complete loss of your Brooklyn accent, <laughs> not just due to your academic background and your many years in the radio business. If someone were to tune into your program for the first time, I don't believe they could identify the origin of your speech. <laughs> um, is it written that way? No, <laughs> I'm reading it that way. Uh-huh. Well, how do you explain the uh, loss of your Brooklyn I, I think I never had it, though right. I can obviously I imitate uh, it. Uh, right. I, I, don't, I was born and raised in Brooklyn uh-huh. by immigrant Jewish parents from uh-huh. Eastern Europe, yeah. and I guess that's the way people spoke around me. I don't yeah. know. I don't and, they, know. Uh, and they presumably had that uh, fervent uh, drive to see you well-educated and get that, on in the world. To be sure, as most yeah. such immigrant Jewish parents right, did. did right. But um, I suppose my speech must have been shaped by my further education. Yeah. yeah. And for a while, I was infatuated with theater. Yeah, so and, was I. Yeah, and uh, acted a little bit in yeah. an amateurish way. Yeah. So did I. Yeah, well, there we are. <laughs> the, first, the first time I came down at the age of 21, uh, from Nova Scotia to um, Massachusetts uh, with an opportunity to do a summer of stock there in a barn theater. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I got on stage and opened my mouth that the director pointed out that I was had this great regionalism of oat and a boat, mm-hmm. and I wasn't aware of it until then. Really? Yeah. yeah. Back to the phones, 591-7200. Good evening, you're on the air. Good evening. Even though I was raised in the same place, lived there for the first 21 years of my life, I've always been asked, even as a child, where I was from, wondered if you would like to have it again. Yes, that you do sound a touch regional. Say a little bit more. Uh, what would you like for me to Well, talk? tell us more about your life, your personal uh, life. Well, I, I grew up in uh, a middle-sized town in... Uh, that other place. And, and lived there for 21 years. Is, was it in Texas? Uh, not quite. No. Um, then was it in Louisiana? Uh, no, both of my parents were from Texas. Uh huh. So I I can't guess any further where you grew up. I can. You're from Arkansas. You've got it. Uh huh. I have it because Maggie Burnt, our producer, put it on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> but I wondered. I had. I know I had speech lessons as a preschooler, and I wondered if if I might have had a speech teacher from someone somewhere that influenced my accent mm-hmm. yeah. so that our Kansans didn't think I was from Arkansas. Uh-huh. She come to think of it, I took speech courses, I think they were almost required, at Brooklyn College. Really? At least one speech course, and probably there was some corrective influence uh-huh. from the teacher of Did, that course. As, as, as public speaking speaking Yeah, course. I suppose that was the, uh, the uh-huh. intent of it. But uh-huh. It's sort of like elocution lessons. Yeah. A lot of, um, a lot of um, parents of several generations ago, wanting to better their their children, mm-hmm. probably did try and um, and I- improve the way they talked, whether through lessons or or whatever, uh, because there was a probably a bigger drive then to um, to to aim towards some standard. By the way, uh, our thanks to the caller. Very interesting uh, uh, contribution. As a Nova Scotian or Nova Scotian, how does one say that? Scotian. Nova Scotian. Um, or just Scotian, uh, were you more or less um, a Francophone as well? No, not at all. The French um, aren't really well represented. Yeah, there's, there's a famous um, Canadian novel published in the middle 40s called Two Solitudes. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that, uh, Hugh McLennan, 
long deceased, um, uh, accurately came up with a metaphor for the fact that English Canada and French Canada lived in two solitudes at the time. And even though I was born in Montreal, and my grandmother lived in Montreal, and we visited her frequently, <laughs> and she lived on the corner of the street where Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the future prime minister, lived, there was no contact other than say, good morning, Mrs. Boudreau, to mm -hmm. the next-door neighbor, otherwise no social contact at all. But of course now in Canada, and for some years, is a way, I suppose, of trying to persuade the uh, Quebecois not to leave yeah. uh, the Canadian Union, uh, all public officials and most, uh, uh, and, uh, most uh, people in the, higher, uh, in, in the reaches of higher education are virtually required. And journalists. And journalists, and journalists are required now, yeah. and the younger, both languages. And the younger generation, certainly in Ontario and uh, Quebec, Less so as you go further west, mm -hmm. depending on their aspirations. I mean, you can't advance in the Canadian civil service unless you're effectively bilingual or in the Canadian military. My brother was a, uh, an officer in the Canadian Navy. He rose to be an admiral, and uh, he went to the first uh, French military college in, uh, in Canada and became, effect and had to be in the ships that he mm -hmm. commanded. Uh, if you rise in the Canadian Parliament, you can ask a question of the ministers in either language and get answered in the language you asked the question yep. in. So there's been a huge push ever since the 1960s, as you say, to make the Quebecois feel more at home within the federal system. And the policy is called biculturalism and bilingualism. Yep. Um, we go back to the phones in just a moment, 591-7200. If you are trying to reach us and hitting the busy signal, uh, as is undoubtedly the case, the best strategy is to call again right after we say goodnight to somebody else. And here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, I have a comment uh, to Mr. McNeil. Um, I notice a similarity between his voice and speech pattern to that of Dick Cavett, and I was wondering if there's any commonality in regional or maybe university uh, experiences. Not that I know of. I'm not sure where Dick Cavett came from originally. Did he come from the Midwest? England, I believe. He, I am. I am informed by Maggie Burnt, our producer, who was born in Lincoln and raised in Lincoln, Nebraska. That, that so was Dick Cavett uh -huh. from Lincoln, oh, Nebraska. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I was way off then. Yeah. I've. Um, it's a similarity I'm unaware of. It. It made maybe just years of broadcasting. Of, but uh -huh. um, my my. I'm often uh, accused of having a uh, sort of transatlantic accent because I lived a long time in Britain mm -hmm. and as well as growing up in Canada. Well, it, well, Cabot certainly has a sort of upper-class Easter, Eastern Seaboard accent, I would say. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and the question, is there, <laughs> one question, is there any longer a native Floridian accent or has that been pretty much eliminated by the influx of people from the Midwest and the Northeast? Yeah, I think the second um, proposition is the truer one. Um, I don't know of a native Floridian accent left. We thank you, sir. Uh, interesting little uh, note by email here. It's interesting, says the listener writer, it's interesting that no matter where I travel in this country, the talking heads of even the local newscasts, almost without exception, are ordinary Midwestern-type speakers. Uh, what's your comment? Does this suggest perhaps that this type of speech is the most authentic, in quotes, or what? Well, there's several things to say about that. One is, when you ask Americans today, as a professor, we quote, does for a living, what they think of other American speech, the most people, no matter where they come from, say the Midwest is the, is the 
best American speech. And what they mean by that is that it has fewest identifiable regionalisms in the speech of the Midland Midwest, which is the linguistic area just south of the Great Lakes. Um, That, when broadcasting came in, you must remember this, when broadcasting came in... I wasn't here when it came in. No, I know, but when it first began... Uh, networks and radio stations wanted to put on the air people who annoyed the fewest people. Sure. Uh, and Americans are still put off by some accents. When you, I mean, a lot of Americans are still put off by a southern accent or by a New York accent or whatever. So they didn't want people, listeners, to be driven away by accents they hated. And so they went for the one with the fewest irritating regional markers, and that was the Midwestern accent. So that became the the NBC standard and the CBS standard. And the broadcasters still strive for it today, although the networks have become a lot more hospitable to um, uh, standard grammatical English, but with some regional tinge in the accent. For instance, Dan Rather, Jim Lehrer, mm-hmm. Peter Jennings, um, all with... Uh, Larry King speaks Brooklyn Patois. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he is... Uh, but. He's uh, in a different category. He's a sort of personality. Yeah, he's a personality. Uh, personality. Um, he comes from the very same neighborhood in Brooklyn. Oh, really? From, really? Uh-huh. From Bensonhurst. Uh-huh. Uh, we're going to pause for a quick round of commercials, then directly back. And we return to Robert McNeil. We're drawing from uh, the riches available in his wonderfully readable and uh, totally entertaining and also at the same time illuminating new book, Do You Speak American? That's published by Doubleday. Five nine one seven two double zero is where you reach us. You have done so. Good evening. Hi there. I want to thank uh, Mr. McNeil. When my uh, daughter, who's a college student now, was seven or eight, she began badgering me about differences in speech, and she wore out the uh, story of English, reading and rereading it, and that helped her a lot. Wow. Uh, and uh, became a little linguist out of all that. That's great. But my question is. Uh, any impact on our language from South Asian immigration, and maybe a reverse on that, any comment on the uh, telephone solicitors who are being trained in South Asia mm. to try and sound American, even though they've been raised in the uh, yeah. speech system. I, that's, that's delightful to know about that, because um, I've read stories about some of these people in Bangalore, India, actually watching American uh, sitcoms and things so they can pick up typical expressions and, um, and, uh, and make themselves sound more American. I think it is a very interesting comment on American attitudes to regional dialects that it is not only economically uh, worthwhile for um, uh, American companies to have uh, outsourced the call centers to India, of all places, 6,000 miles away, but that Americans don't mind hearing those accents, uh, whereas they would mind hearing some regional American accents. They would not want, for instance, to hear, because of the typical, the sort of stereotypical reactions, to deep southern accents or African-American accents on their call centers, because they'd make assumptions about the caller. Now, the effect of those languages on our language, there's huge South Asian migration into the United States. But the big effect on the English language was during the imperial British period in India, when all kinds of words from, um, from Hindi and Hindustani and so on, through the British Army and the British Colonial Service, made their way into English. Bungalow is, uh, is one as a style of house. Tiffin, the British slang for, uh, for tea. Jodhpur is, you know, I, 
I'm running out of them now, but there are whole dictionaries of Anglo-English words. Pajama. Pajama. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And let's go directly to another caller. You are on the air. Good evening. Yeah, in uh, Philadelphia and other parts of the East Coast, there are three words that are pronounced differently, but in the Midwest, almost all of the Midwest, they're pronounced the same. I'm referring to marry, M-A-R-R-Y, two people get married, M-E-R-R-Y, Merry Christmas, and M-A-R-Y, Mary, the girl's name. Yep. But and in the, the test, Midwest, they're almost all the same. The test Mary. phrase is Mary, Mary, married. You're right. Yeah. yeah. There are a number of places where those uh, words are all pronounced the same. In uh, Well, around well, here they are. Yeah, yeah. Basic in Midwest. West Texas. Is Mary, Mary, married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and uh, it's, I don't know. I don't know much more to say about that, except that there uh, there are places where they're all the same. In, in your own native accent, it would be Mary, Mary, married, would it not? No, I think you would say marry for uh, to be married, yeah. marry, and Mary to be Mary, and the girl's name would be Mary. Um, so say Mary, Mary, married. Um, yeah, um, Mary, Mary, married. Yes. Yeah. The first two have the same sound value. Yeah, same right. vowel. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Of course, the crazy spelling of English, it's just so ridiculous that we mm. can have four or five ways of spelling the same sound. Um, makes that possible in English. Yeah. That, that M-A-R-Y can be pronounced the same as M-E-R-R-Y. Sir, we thank you for the call. May I ask another question? Yes, sir? of course. Yeah. Go ahead. I noticed in your statement of George Washington that he said, from whence... Mm -hmm. I wonder if that isn't tautological. Shouldn't it be just whence? Eh, probably so. Tautology has its purpose and has its uh, rhetorical value. Yeah, from whence was a common phrase. I should think so. Well, it was. Uh, yeah. Um, from whence he came. It's uh, it's part of the um, King James Version of the Bible. It's I also think. from Guys and Dolls. Take back your mink from whence it <laughs> from came. Whence came. <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay. Five nine one seven two double zero, and here's the next caller. Good evening. Good evening. Um, I'd like to thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm I'm currently studying um, English, but I'd like to pursue a master's in linguistics. So I was uh, very excited to see your documentary. Um, I have a question about that. Um, I saw um, your interview with a prescriptive linguist who yeah. says that um, English is depressing now, and I also saw when you were speaking with a descriptive linguist who said that um, he was, I think he was an editor for um, the Oxford English Dictionary. That's right. Mm -hmm. Would go uh, in the magazines and um, figure out which words are new and they would like to put into the dictionary. Right. And um, I was speaking about this with my boyfriend and the... Uh, um, the prescriptive linguist, if they were to try to preserve it, wouldn't it be just in uh, this time period? Well, I think what um, the prescriptive linguists today have are not attempting to stop change in the language or stop the invention of new words. Um, they may have done that back in the time of Daniel Defoe, uh, who wrote... Um, uh, Robinson Crusoe, who wanted it to be as serious a crime as counterfeiting money to coin a new word. I don't think prescriptive linguists try and, uh, are trying to do that anymore. They realize it's vain. What they are trying to do is hold fast to the rules of grammar 
as they're generally understood and to make people obey them and to uh, to try and keep the distinctions between uninterested and disinterested, for example, uh, which are floating away, to hold on to media as a plural word uh, of the singular medium and criteria as the plural of criterion. Those are the kinds of things they're trying to hold us to. Oh, okay. It's things like that. We thank you for the call, and um, somebody interested in language should get a better cell phone. 591-7200. The number, you are next on the air. Good evening. Good evening. I've enjoyed your program a lot tonight as I've been interested in regional dialects myself for most of my life. Um, I was wondering if you might be able to narrow down uh, where I'm from and uh, the influences in my speech. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd add that I grew up in one place, uh, left and went to another region of the country where I attended the university and then lived in that same area for quite a few years, uh, about 10 years before returning to uh, my original home for about 20 years. And then I've been here in Chicago for about three years uh, working uh, temporarily. I'm, uh, you've got me stumped. What about, okay. you? what about you, Milt? I know where he's from. Do you? Because I've got it on my screen. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's from my Wyoming, is that right, sir? Yes, it is. I was yeah. born and raised in uh, Cheyenne, so it, I don't have the rural accent of Wyoming. Uh -huh. uh, and then I attended uh, Washington University in St. Louis and uh, lived there for quite a few years. But in my travels around the country, I've run into some isolated pockets of uh, uh, southern, I guess, dialect speech that you might find that I found nearly unintelligible. And one of them was in uh, Pena, Illinois. Uh -huh. uh, I just happened to, uh, I was working one year delivering gasoline, and uh, I ran into some people I found very, very hard to understand. I, would, I don't know where they came from, and I was surprised to find them in the middle of Illinois like that. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it, things like that. Um, isn't Wyoming part of uh, a great area where general American of the Midwest variety yes, prevails? Yes, it's generally assumed that if you if you went down the east coast of the United States, you'd find lots of different dialects, although some of them are dying out. But if you went west, after you got west of the Midwest, there's generally one, uh, it sort of fans out uh, to the west. Um, and of course, people from communities, like the gentleman who just called, know the differences, the little subtle, tiny differences between one region's accent and another. But generally speaking, it's one dialect to the west now, hitting California, as usual, and bouncing back from California with additions created there. Our thanks to the caller, and we pause for a quick round of commercials and then directly back. And speaking of those audio archives, I hereby pronounce that we will have this program up on the archive within the week uh, to be available into perpetuity. Huh. Uh, it's just so much fun, and uh, you're such a fine guest. Uh, so... Uh, there's much else there, of course, that's been accumulating over the years. If you want to get to the archive, you just go to WGN Radio. When you reach the first page, of the, uh, 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 you click on My Name. That takes you to the sub-site, so to speak, for Extension 720, where many things are available to you. The audio archive, the program guide, and Milt's file are more or less twice-a-week blog, and uh, a good deal else, even a picture gallery. 591-7200 is our number. As we go to the next call, you are on the air. Good evening. Yeah, good evening. Uh, gentlemen, uh, we refer to the Bears 
and them Andy and his brother and them guys over there. Could the reason for that uh, lack of the TH sound be because so many of the immigrants came from countries like Germany and Poland and uh, Italy where they did not make the TH sound? Uh, they didn't make the TH sound in in uh, County Cork and County no. Clare. Sir, it would help if you turned off your radio because it's confusing and slowing you. I think I think uh, the gentleman raises a very a very good question. Um, I was uh, in the course of doing this. I was in a small community in Louisiana, and there was a um, gentleman there speaking Cajun English, um, English with a strong French, and originally Nova Scotian mm-hmm. uh, overtone. The French have great difficulty saying th, um, and so they say uh, this, that, um, and I would think um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the other languages the gentleman mentioned that I know a little bit about, and I think it's probably a very good, a very good um, point that he raises. In the opinion of, uh, of professional linguistic scholars, is is there a Chicago accent as such, rather than the one that prevails in the Great Lakes area? Um, I don't know. Um, what I know is the um, the um, which we've discussed in the book is this changing short vowel system mm-hmm. of which Chicago is a very good example, where uh, which is since the Second World War, and the scholar who's discovered this, Leboff, thinks it's a revolutionary change in the short vowels that in English have been consistent for more than a thousand years. Illustrate that again. Um, he says. Um, he gives an example of a woman who says black, and then you think she's saying the color, and then you hear the full sentence, and she's saying all the senior citizens living on one black, and it's block pronounced as black. Another woman says bosses, and you think she means employers, and she's saying, I can remember when they had all the bosses with the antennas on top. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and not only that vowel, but the others move uh, around it, um, and uh, it is, um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. L- linguists speak of the great vowel shift, but I don't know when that refers to and what happened. I think they're talking about back in the, um, in, um, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it is in, uh, after Chaucer and before Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, it's ancient in the development yeah, of our ancient language. Ancient in the development yeah. of the language. One of the one of the things that fascinates me is the way things um, stay in the language for a thousand years. For example, if you hear somebody say "axe" instead of "ask," you're you're often going to think nowadays that's an African American, yeah. and a lot of white people think it's because they don't hear it properly or they just get it wrong. The original verb in English, in Old English, was axion. That was the infinitive. In Chaucer, in Troilus and Crusader, you see it fully conjugated as ax, axon, axed. In, um, in Trollope, Anthony Trollope's Barchester novels, you hear these rich country squires in his fictional county, mm-hmm. Barchester, which is sort of Somerset, Gloucestershire, they say axed. Um, it, uh, it is really interesting. Um, then why would it... How would it would it have come to persist in black speech? Uh, and it, a lot of white speech in the South too. Uh-huh. It's not unknown in white speech. So it's a southernism. It's generally. become a southernism. It's become um, a kind of such a marker for black speech that white people increasingly are not are not yeah. using it. Hmm. But I suppose 
um, some people from those parts of England, maybe Somerset, where people did say Axe, uh, were uh, were um, settlers mm. in that part of Mississippi, Louisiana, wherever it was, yeah. and it and it got passed on. But it's fascinating that it stays that undercurrent stays so long. It is indeed fascinating. Back to the phones, and here is the next caller. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir. Um, uh, oh hi. Uh, no, uh, I'm English, and uh, over here everybody thinks I speak with an English accent. When I go home, uh, everybody thinks I speak with an American accent. And uh, some years ago, I was working in Belfast, and uh, I literally had to lip-read to understand what they were saying to me. And uh, finally, I, I, I caught on pretty good, and uh, there was no problem. Um, on one occasion, I needed to go south to Dublin, about 150 miles away. When I got down there, I couldn't understand a word they said. <laughs> I mean, it was so difficult. Um, so really, the, 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 these accents are, are so close to each other and yet so isolated from each other, too. What part I of mean, England, may I ask, what part of England you came from originally? Uh, London, sir. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Well, you... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, uh, you, you've lived here long enough to pick up some uh, American overtones in your speech, I would say. Wouldn't you say? Uh, yes, um, but I... <laughs> we have a store near here called Home D D Depot, yeah. uh, which I insist on calling Depot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so forth and so on. I call it Depot, too, coming from Canada, but... Uh, ah, yes, of course. <laughs> Yeah, I thought, it, it, I thought it was Depot. <laughs> no, you don't pronounce the T. Oh, is that so? <laughs> well, you know, as the Irish would say, will you be out for having a cup of tea? Thank you, sir. Fascinating, thank you. Glad to have heard good, from you. Good. And uh, on to another, 591-7200. If you've been trying to reach us, we now at last have one or two lines available. You are on the air. Good evening. Is that me? Yes, sir. Oh, an excellent program, Mel. I make comments on the southern Indiana, although only 200 miles from Chicago, the uh, almost accent is if in the south, your do's and your twos, I, whether it's because of the uh, slow draw. Can you say a sentence or two in southern Indiana speech? Pardon? Say a sentence or two in southern Indiana speech. Well, it's a do and two. I, that's about the only ones I can remember. I'm from Chicago, and it's only mm -hmm. 200 miles south around Terre Haute. Uh, our people from that area, and they have that slow drawl, relatively slow talk, and they always had a do and a two. Well, the south does reach up into the Midwestern states. Mm -hmm. Around yeah. Cairo, Illinois, right. you essentially have a southern speech pattern, don't you? Uh -huh. Okay. Um, it, it does. Um, and the, um, the drawl, is the thing that is usually uh, the most sort of identified by uh, Northerners as being uh, as being Southerners. There's a movie, um, Sweet Home Alabama, which was released a couple of years ago, and the, the good old boy in the movie who stays home when his wife, Reese Witherspoon, goes up to New York and becomes a big success, he says to her, just because I talk slow doesn't mean I'm stupid. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, but the, the, the drawl is... Um, 
a lot of things are described as drawl. Texas is described as a drawl. Westerners, right. cowboys are described as, uh, their speech is described as a drawl. And, I, and country people, generally speaking, do tend to talk more slowly than yeah. big city yeah. people. We thank you, sir, for the call. What's happening back in the mother country to the language? In England? Yeah. One major thing is happening is that the received pronunciation, or BBC English, Southern Educa Educated English, which was never spoken by more than about 6% of the population in England, um, is now no longer so essential that the BBC is allowing all kinds of people with regional accents to come on as journalists and commentators. And uh, that's quite a move. It means that there is a, an appreciation of the linguistic and dialectical diversity of the country, as there is, and we hope with this effort of ours, in this country. The other thing is, the gentleman um, said he was originally from London and a Cockney. There is now developing in um, the London area a, a new d emerging dialect, which is known as estuary English, around the Thames mm -hmm. estuary, and it includes elements of Cockney pronunciations and a lot of people with the posh accent, the upper-class accent, who grew up with that, went to the schools where it's taught, are a little embarrassed to be considered quite so posh and are tending to adopt some sort of what they would have called a generation ago lower-class accents, including some Cockneyisms, so that pronunciation of words like bottle are becoming more bottle. And there are linguists we found 20 years ago who predict that ultimately Londoners will again speak much more Cockney than they do now, no. that it, that is, it is such a strong and influential accent that it'll come back in England. In By the London, way, in, in, London. in your comment just now, you used the word posh. There's been a running argument. We, it's been exercised on this program a few times as to what the etymology of posh is. I don't know. I've heard the, the port out starboard home. Yeah, and I'm, I, I'm told but, that's a, a mythic I know it is, but it's so nice that it... Uh, uh, in other words, if you um, if you went on the port side out to India, yeah. you would be in the shade most of the time, and the same on the starboard home. Uh, um, anyway, I don't know. It's a lovely. It's like so many origins of things. It's a lovely story. Where could you go and pass for a native? Wh which other regional accents can you manage? Could, could I go? Yeah, I mean, and you pass could for a native. I don't know any longer. I have so many influences and my speech is such a sort of bastard mixture of different things. I like my spelling. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, I really don't know. Um, I love the South India, the South Asian, the Indian I accents. love them too. I love and those I, accents. I try to do it sometimes. Yeah. But Peter Ustinov was with us a number oh, of times he, on oh, this really? program. Yeah. And we've got a number of, we've got a good deal of what he did recorded. And he's just such a Perfect. He's three or four different Indians in one scene. That oh, I know. Yeah, he's he is fabulous. Yeah. Um, I also love West Indian accents. When I was a kid in Canada, listening to radio from all over, America, London, Canadian radio, um, they used to have a program on Calypso music on the CBC, mm. and I loved those accents and uh, tried to imitate them myself. As I loved the music. We are just about out of time. It's been a delight talking with you. Oh, Milt, it's been wonderful. I wish Thank you would you. do books more often. Or, well, I'll, or I'll come by even when you don't have a book, of okay. course. Our guest has been Robert McNeil, um, who uh, is the co-author of the new book, Do You Speak American? The other author is William Cran, and it is just published uh, by Doubleday Books.